morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barton in Washington. Today is Wednesday, January 25th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The DRC refutes allegations that its fighter jet violated Rwandan territory. They tried to shoot down our aircraft, actually on the Congolese territory. The point is, since they missed to shut it down, they were the first ones to send out an announcement saying that we violated the airspace. The former chair of Kenya's electoral body says he was offered a bribe to alter the results of last year's presidential elections. We will have a look at next month's presidential elections in Nigeria. South Africa's power cuts hit a business praised by the president. Malawi's health ministry seeks over 7 million doses of vaccine to address a cholera outbreak. Uganda launches its first oil drilling project. Petroleum is needed for other products, not necessarily for fuel. We need the, the fertilizers, nitrogen from the ammonia. All these are from petroleum. So we can use the petroleum responsibly. And the body of a Tanzanian killed in Ukraine returns home for burial. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The Democratic Republic of Congo has condemned what it says was an attack on one of its fighter jets by Rwanda on Tuesday in Goma, the capital of North Kivu province. Kigali said Tuesday that it took defensive measures when a DRC Sukhoi 25 fighter plane violated Rwandan airspace for the third time in weeks. In a statement on Tuesday, the DRC government denied the fighter left national territory. It says the jet was attacked as it was beginning to land at Goma International Airport. Kinshasa says it considers the attack a deliberate act of aggression, which amounts to an act of war. Ibrahim Lua Kabuanga is the spokesperson for DRC President Felix Chisekedi. He says Kigali is creating a false narrative to cover up for an attack earlier Tuesday by the Rwandan army near the town of Kichanga. This morning, the M23 forces that are backed by the Rwanda army tried to get into Goma. They were fighting in a city called Kishanja, which is not far away from Goma. And uh, the army called for an aerial support. That's the reason why one of the jet fighters located in Goma took off and went down to help those who were on the field. On uh, the way back, before actually a landing in uh, Goma's airport, several fires of shell, I think there were like three, three shell fires went uh, towards the plane. One was almost hit uh, the plane that he had to use his anti-defense uh, system and uh, he could land safely. But at the airport, there were still fires. One fire, little fires started on the plane uh, and uh, the firefighters shut it down. So saying that our jet was violating Rwanda's territory is a false statement. So Rwanda says it took defensive measures against your aircraft. Did Rwanda shoot your aircraft down? They tried to shoot down our aircraft, actually on the Congolese territory. That's where, you know, they're wrong. We do have all the information, we do have videos showing that the fighter was on the Congolese airspace. That's where they tried to shut it down. The point is, since they missed to shut it down, they were the first one 
to send out an announcement saying that we violated the airspace, which was not the case. This is not the first time Rwanda is complaining. You know, I think we Congolese and uh, the international community have to understand the complaints of the Congolese. The M23, everybody knows. All the countries, even the USA, say that Rwanda is backing the M23. We have signed in Rwanda, we have signed agreement in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and the uh, M23 accepts that time to withdraw from the Congolese territory until today, weeks after, nothing is done. And they launched this morning an attack to try to get Goma. We fire back a few kilometers from Goma, and our army has to use the jet fighter. That's the reason why, since they lost their position this morning, they could not succeed on their attack. They fire at our jets on our land, on our territory. I was speaking to an analyst from Rwanda who says that this whole thing is your government trying to agitate because of the elections coming up in your country. Mr. Butler, uh, I have a question. When the election took place in Rwanda, Mr. Kagame violated and changed the constitution nothing more than once to remain into power. We don't have anything to learn from Rwanda. Congo has a real democracy, and the President Tshisekedi is fighting uh, as the, 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 the Independent uh, Commission to organize elections in December. So we are seeing the effort made by the government, effort made by the Independent Commission to organize elections on time. So there is no false situation here, and I'm not seeing the reason why President Tshisekedi will postpone the elections just for because he's in trouble. This is not the case. The main point is the M23, backed by Rwanda, has to withdraw from their position. They're not doing so. They're trying to move on, and we won't let them do it again. Abraham, thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Abraham Luakabuanga, a spokesperson for DRC President Felix Chisekedi. You're speaking with us from the capital, Kinshasa. Uganda on Tuesday launched the drilling of its oil fields, which is expected to generate billions of U.S. dollars in revenue. President Yoweri Museveni says the funds will be used for development. Reporter Mugumi Davis Rakarinji has more from Kampala. The multi-billion dollar drilling project was launched in Chikube district, which borders the Democratic Republic of Congo, some 230 kilometers from the Ugandan capital Kampala. The oil exploration project, which is a joint venture between the government of Uganda and the China National Offshore Corporation, is expected to produce at least 40,000 barrels of oil per day upon completion in 2025. Ugandan President Yulim Seven said that the project launched that oil will propel the country's development. Where the oil is now, that has been confirmed, 6.5 billion, is in only 40% of the Mwitanzige Butumbi Valley. So there's another 60% of that valley where we are going to look for more, for more oil. So we may end up with much more oil than we are talking about. With an estimated investment of about $2 billion, the field is expected to earn Uganda about $7 billion, including oil sales. Petroleum is needed for other products, not necessarily for fuel. The shirt I'm putting on has got some polyester in it, and polyester is from petrol. We need the, the fertilizers, nitrogen from the ammonia, you heard of ammonia. All these are from petroleum. So we can use the petroleum responsibly. The governments of Uganda and Tanzania have also agreed to construct a 1,443-kilometer conduit to transport oil to the coast. 
something activists say will harm the ecosystem and communities living along the pipeline. Earlier on Tuesday, the police prevented Uganda opposition leader and four-time presidential candidate Dr. Tiza Besije from attending an activist lecture on oil and petroleum issues. Besije told reporters their refusal was not lawful. I would like you to interrogate the Inspector General of Police where the police derives this kind of power to stop citizens having meetings inside a hotel. And so they are clearly violating the law, knowing that they are doing so. It is acts simply of impunity. The police say Besija was not allowed to attend the event because they had not obtained permission from them. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarinji reporting from Kampala, Uganda. The former chair of Kenya's Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, IEBC, Wafula Chibukati, claims that he was offered a bribe by the opposition to alter the results of last year's presidential elections. Speaking on Tuesday before the tribunal investigating four commissioners who distanced themselves from the vote count, Chibukati said that three people walked to the National Center at 3 a.m. when he was asleep. They asked him to change the score in favor of Azimio, La Umoja leader, Raila Odinga, or force a runoff. There was a split among board members when the results were declared, with four distancing themselves from the tally, which they call OPEG. Maureen Ojiambo reports. The person who spoke these words was uh, Rafael Tuju, and uh, that's what he said. Yeah, we consider the request, then we shall be rewarded. That is Kenya's former Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, IEBC Chairperson Wafula Chebukate, testifying before the tribunal that is investigating the four electoral body commissioners who rejected the results of the vote. Chebukate says a team of three people allied to the opposition went to the National Tallying Center early morning and asked him to alter the tally in favor of opposition leader Rilodinga, a move Chebukati refused. The three-member team allegedly included former cabinet secretary Rafael Tuju, former Busia Senator Amos Wako, and advocate Charlo Mbobu. First to speak was uh, Senator Amos Wako. He said we should not operate in a vacuum. Uh, we should look at the bigger picture for the country. And uh, as a uh, Former election supervisor, then when you reach this kind of situation, uh, you can moderate results and uh, achieve stability uh, of, of the country. Also, Honorable Tuchu spoke. He said that uh, it was necessary that we moderate these results in favor of Baba and that any contrary declaration of results would plunge the country into chaos. Chabukati told the tribunal that the statements from the three-member team came as a threat. They told him that tension is high in regions that were in support of opposition leader Elodinga and that he should force a runoff or declare Odinga the winner. The elections uh, reflect the will of the people in form that 4A is announced at the polling station and transmitted to the uh, portal. So any form of moderation would not be possible. However, Mr. Tuju had earlier refused claims by Chebukati. Chebukati also said that he opened the floor for other commissioners to air their thoughts on the suggestion by the three, and it is at that point when one of the commissioners, Irene Masit, supported the proposal from Senator Wako and Mr. Tuju, an idea the chair and other members rejected. At the same time, outgoing IEBC Commissioner Abdi Gulie said that the commissioners experienced a lot of insecurity at the Tallinn Centre, 
Gulia says some staff members of the commission were abducted and many were terrified. When we were told there are already skirmishes, the fights have begun, if you announce whoever you want to announce or whom we think you are announcing, there will be a bloodbath and the blood of those Kenyans will be on your hands. I mean, it was really obvious that we have been forced to think in a particular direction. I swore to uphold the Constitution, and my conviction was I live by my oath of office. During the announcement of the presidential results at the National Tallying Center in August, the electoral body, IEBC, reported attacks on members who were hurt by people alleged to be in support of the opposition candidate. Almost all the commissioners who presided over last year's general election have already left office. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jembo in Sacramento, California. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Butt in Washington. Today is Wednesday, January 25th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Next month, Nigeria will hold presidential elections, the seventh since the current wave of liberal democracy formally started in 1999. Eighteen presidential candidates will participate in the February 25 poll. Three stand out, Bola Ahmed Tinubu of the ruling All-Progressive Congress, APC, Atiku Abubakar of the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, and Peter Obi of the Labour Party. Gidiofo Adebe is Professor of International Relations and Political Science at Nasarawa State University in Kefi. He tells Douglas Mpuga that this election might be different from the past ones. The fundamental thing is that at least now, unlike in the, since 1999, in fact until 2014, 2015. Uh, Nigeria has been a one-party dominant state in the sense that only one party, the then uh, People's Democratic Party, was viable enough to win power at the federal level. That changed in 2013 when a new uh, set of regionally-based political parties came together from the All-Progressive Congress, which was then able to unseat a government into their sitting government in 2015. Now, since then, Nigeria became a two-dominant party state, which means two parties were seen to be strong enough to and capable of winning power at the center. But that had never happened, because the other political parties, the smaller parties, were so disunited. So in this round, you have uh, two other parties that have become, you know, very competitive in the election, very competitive. And especially one, especially one known as the Labour Party, which has captured the imagination of the young people. And um, the presidential candidate, P2B, is treated as uh, almost like uh, a celebrity wherever he goes. Of course, people say he doesn't have the structures. He's a new party or non-party to win, especially in the you know, upper place we call the corners, that's the Muslim north. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is that he's the only Christian in the, in the, in the race, and uh, the, three, the four main candidates mirror the ethnic and religious divide. If you look at the ruling of Progressive con- uh, Congress, its candidates choose 
a Muslim and a fellow Muslim as a running mate, thereby upsetting the convention that the, both the president and the vice president should come from different faiths. So there are still some people, especially from the northern, northern part of the country where the Christians are in the minority, they feel very aggrieved. And then there are also people who feel that the main opposition party, the People's Democratic Party, has another than a Fulani man trying to succeed another number after eight years in office. That was GDO for Adebe, Professor of International Relations and Political Science at Nasarawa State University in Kefi. You are speaking from Abuja with Douglas Mpuga. Malawi has appealed for more than 7 million additional doses of cholera vaccine from the World Health Organization as it struggles to control a record outbreak of the bacterial illness. The WHO donated almost 3 million doses of the vaccine to Malawi in November, but those were quickly used up. Since March of last year, almost 30,000 people have been infected and nearly 1,000 have died. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The appeal for more cholera doses comes as Malawi continues to register an increase in cases that have now affected all of its 29 districts. The spokesperson for the health ministry, Adrian Chikumbe, says talks with the WHO are underway. We are expecting consignment of 7.6 million doses for 17 districts. It's not for all the districts, but we're going to also consider districts that are being hard hit with the current outbreak. The Minister of Health said Tuesday that there is no indication Malawi will receive the vaccine anytime soon because many other countries are also pressing the WHO on the same issue. The World Health Organization first supported Malawi with 3.9 million doses of the oral cholera vaccine last May after the outbreak was reported in March. The country received another consignment of 2.9 million doses in November through the WHO and the UN Children's Agency, UNICEF. Maziko Matemba is the community health ambassador in Malawi. He says the vaccine shortage shows a change in attitude toward the shorts. We had a similar situation with COVID where we had low uptake. When we see more people getting sick and more people dying, so I'm hoping the WHO and government of Malawi will take an, uh, as an advantage that now we have high uptake. People are demanding for the vaccine. Some of us who have even received calls on where people want to access the vaccine. So I'm hoping this time to utilize the demand. Cholera is an acute diarrheal disease that can kill within hours if left untreated. Malawi is currently battling its worst cholera outbreak in a decade, largely blamed on poor sanitation and hygiene. The hard-hit districts include Malawi's capital, Lilongwe, and commercial hub, Blantyre. Wangani Mbale is the health promotion officer for the Blanta District Health Office. According to our research, which we have done so far, the main culprit to this increase of uh, cholera disease is the use of uh, unsafe water. As you know that uh, Blantyre, the population is growing due to urbanization, so the source of water is so scarce. So people are resorting into using unsafe sources of water. The Malawian government is reconnecting water kiosks in hard-hit areas which were disconnected because of unpaid water bills. As the country awaits another supply of cholera vaccine, 
health authorities have intensified campaigns on preventive measures like eating boiled foods, washing hands with soap before eating, and using toilets. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. The body of 33-year-old Tanzanian Nemeth Tarimo, who was killed fighting for Russia in Ukraine, is returning home for burial. Tanzania says Tarimo agreed to fight for the Wagner Group in exchange for being released from a Russian prison, the second African known to have died that way. Charles Kumbe reports from Dar es Salaam. During a press briefing, Tanzanian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tagumena Taxi, said the body of Nemes Tarimo was on its way home early Tuesday from Russia. The minister confirmed the 33-year-old Tanzanian was serving a seven-year sentence in Russia before he joined the Wagner group of mercenaries. She said the group promised Tarimo, who was sentenced in March of last year, that he will be released and paid after fighting for Russia in Ukraine. Taxi says it should be noted that, according to the country's laws, no Tanzanian is allowed to join the army of any country except the Tanzanian army. She says all Tanzanians should ensure they comply with the laws of the country and the rules and the procedures provided. Taxi said Tarimo went to Russia in 2020 for a master's degree at the Russian Technological University in Moscow. Tanzanian media report he was arrested on drug-related charges, sentenced, and then offered his freedom if he went to war. Tarimo's family say his friends in Russia, where he was studying before his arrest, confirmed his death in late December. His mother, Loida Sambulika, spoke to VOA Tuesday. She says they are waiting for the body of her son because they were told it will arrive soon. Sambulika says he will not be home until the body arrives. Tarimo's death in Ukraine mirrored that of Zambian national Lemekani Nyirenda, who was also a student in Russia, arrested on drug charges, then promised freedom to fight for Wagner Group. News of Tarimo's death circulated in social media last week with a video showing Russian men in military outfits holding candles around his casket. In the video, a picture of Tarimo, two medals, and a certificate are placed on the casket, which is wrapped with a flag of the Wagner Group. The group has been accused of rights abuses from Syria to Ukraine to Central African Republic. Charles Kombe, for VOA News, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. That's it for this Wednesday, January 25th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming on board with us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing you will have a wonderful day.
Stay engaged with VOA Africa. You can call us 24-7 on WhatsApp and leave a message, comments or greetings. Dial the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. The number again is the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, Africa. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is wrapping up her trip to Senegal, Zambia, and South Africa, and U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, heads to Ghana, Mozambique, and Kenya. We talk with Africa experts about the significance and impact of President Biden's energized U.S.-Africa policy, next on Encounter, this Saturday and Sunday.